This is Peter Helland on Citizens for Community Media. And we just had uh, the go former governor of Indiana, former mayor of South Bend, uh, die recently. And I think we've had shows when Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, <laughs> Theodore Hesburgh mm -hmm. died. Um, these are significant for this community, and hopefully we can see how this could be of interest for people outside the community, some of you know, things that we've experienced here. And so Pastor Mario Sims and uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones um, are going to discuss the significance of Joe Kernan uh, and his passing away. And this takes us back for Mario, 1988, when you came and moved right. from Chicago to here. And uh, Mike, you came here in 1979. And um, my experience with Joe Kernan goes back through my cousin who went who played baseball with him. He was here in 1966. And Joe Kernan was a year, I think a year older than him. And they played baseball. And my cousin was ended up playing a little bit for the White Sox, you know, but you always get injured. And um, so that's how I know. I only know, I have only met Joe Kernan once a couple of years ago, and boom, we talked about baseball and my cousin, and he could just talk a lot on that. And so as my experience with Joe Kernan, I had a great time talking to him, okay, because the subject was limited. Uh, but your experience with Joe Kernan and your experience uh, goes to deeper levels, so. You know, I want to kind of start by saying, um, when, you know, I know Mike does a lot uh, internationally. I know he uh, did some things in Iran. You were, went to Iran and spoke and other countries. So I, I want to start by making this kind of a, uh, uh, creating an international interest. The reason is uh, America is seen as um, the one country where uh, democracy is always uh, uh, at the forefront. Uh, you know, people point to America. You know, you see the, the students protesting in China, they're waving American flags. So I think really for me, um, this uh, shines a light on the fact that American democracy is not what people think it is. Um, I know when I came here in 1988 from Chicago, you know, Chicago is known to be a very corrupt uh, uh, democratic-controlled city, had been for years, uh, more so under Daly. So I came here, you know, for a lot of reasons, but one was to seek a small-town uh, small environment. Uh, I remember going to a fundraiser. Uh, you know, coming from Chicago, everybody was a Democrat, so, you know, you, you, uh, you come here, I'm looking to get involved in the Democratic Party, I go to a fundraiser, and I meet with Joe Kernan, who was then mayor, uh, and Mike Barnes, who was the prosecutor, and Ken Fetter, who was the chairman of the Democratic Party. My wife and I even wrote a check for $100. Uh, um, we soon discovered uh, in the neighborhood we lived in the, the, the depths of the corruption. What started me involved as an activist, I had no intent. I, I, had, I was an executive recruiter working out of my house. I had no intention, no experience whatsoever on being an activist, but we had a house down the street that was involved in drug dealing. It turned out it was owned by a single parent who was on Section 8, uh, and the drug dealing just got worse. Now, you got to understand, in 1988, the neighborhood I lived in on the northwest side of, of Indiana, 
we were probably the only, it was probably two or three black families. This neighborhood was mainly Polish or German or Austrian or, uh, it was a wonderful environment. We, you know, we paid $27,000 for our homes. Most of these homes were built in the 40s and these were men who had either fought World War II or Korea War, retired from Cremo Bakery or Bendix or, you know, Studebaker had bought their homes in the 40s and the houses, the grass was well tended and the flowers were beautiful. Women would work on the flowers. Well, you drop into this a black woman who rents a house, who now sells drugs. And it began disrupting, disrupting the neighborhood. So, you know, I figured I would start, start calling the police and complaining. I mean, it's, you could stand in my living room and four doors down, see the traffic, hear the noise. We'd been in the neighborhood maybe eight months before this started. Well, after a number of police calls, I, had, I never forget, I had a, a black police officer come to my house, knock on the door, and he said, look, two things. He said, first of all, I made arrangements for you to get a carry license from the South Bend Police. Okay. He said, go down to the station and get the information. And he said, because we can't protect you. And he said, that house is owned by the college roommate, Mr. Herendine of uh, Joe Kernan. So I thought, well, I mean, come on, this is America. I mean, everyone's against drug dealing. You know, it, it can't be. So, so I started a neighborhood association. You know, I'm offended. We, all of our, we, we have, basically to protect yourself. Well, protect myself, but the sense of righteous indignation that these elderly neighbors aren't enjoying the last years of their life. I was outraged, and I thought, well, you know, make enough noise, the system's going to work. Because of the connection on who owned the house, it made it very difficult. In fact, I end up calling uh, HUD, uh, Housing Urban Development, and, and I left... 15 messages, and I would say, I need to know why our taxpayer money is funding drug dealing. Eventually, the future governor of Nebraska, Oklahoma, called me. He was the general counsel of HUD, and he said, Mr. Sims, he said, uh, you've called our office, you've called the secretary's office. Jack Kemp was the secretary at that time. Frank Keating is who called me. Frank later became the governor of uh, Nebraska, Oklahoma, one of those states. So Frank's on the phone, and he says, you You've called the, the, the secretary 15 times, he said, but unfortunately he doesn't know you. And I said, well, I'm a neighbor who lives four doors down the street from this woman who's living on uh, 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 federal money. She receives money from, you know, the housing authority, uh, Section 8 money, and there's drug dealing. And he said, well, I'm a former DEA agent. And he said, let me make a phone call and I'll have someone get back to you. A week later, a guy named Lou Nixon called. Lou is the general counsel out of Chicago for HUD. Lou calls and he says, I used to be a DNA, DEA agent. I'm going to take the South Shore down. Pick me up. So I pick him up. He stands in my, I, and I have him stand in my living room. He looks down the street. He looks for about a half an hour and he sees the traffic. He goes, that's drug dealing. He said, all the South Bend police had to do was go to Gary, get a minority officer as an undercover, make three buys and bust him. He said, I'm going to call a meeting with the mayor this afternoon and with the head of HUD. And he said, if they don't shut that down, I'm going to take their $3 million in funding. Well, that started this whole thing uh, going. I'm all of a sudden now I'm thrust 
into this spotlight, I, I just wanted to I should tell people, I just want to sit on my porch and read my newspaper and drink a cup of coffee in this small college town. It's a small college town. It's not Chicago. Why am I having these problems of corruption? Well, it just grew from it. My house got shot into twice. Is there a reason? Well, it, the, just, it, the, it did. Well, because I'm protesting and I'm complaining. And, and uh, I, I remember one day famously, the first time my house got shot into, they said, well, it's just some guy angry that you're complaining about drug dealing. The second time, um, I never forget, there was a cameraman from one of the local television stations, WSBT. He said, do you mind if I look? For, they couldn't find a bullet. You'd be inside the house and you couldn't see it. But outside, you see the two bullet holes. He called me later that day after he left my house. He said, we found a bullet. It had entered the back of your gas stove. It had missed the gas line by about an inch. And it hit the front of the stove, puckered it, and then fell back inside. But he said, you know, he said, that's a jacketed bullet. He said, that's not a bullet that some average guy would use. And I remember thinking, this is a, but this is a college town. This is America. It's supposed to be America. So my profile increased. I, I remember the news media thought I was insane. Uh, one uh, uh, reporter from Channel 16 called me and said, would you mind standing in front of the drug house and us doing an interview? I said, sure. I mean, what, what's, what's wrong with, with doing that? Um, but after I did that, um, matter of fact, I, my profile, at one point I developed the highest profile of any non-elected official because I was so outspoken. I was, you know, I'm a Marine Corps veteran and I'm determined I'm not going to be shouted down or intimidated. So uh, I began organizing and uh, uh, people began reaching out uh, about addressing these problems. At one point, uh, I had a chance to meet with uh, Digger Phelps. Digger Phelps at that time was the Weedon scene director under uh, George Bush, the first Bush. And he had told me, make an application and we can, the federal government can submit some money to help re reclaim your neighborhood. But it's got to be in partnership with the, the city of South Bend. So I did a press conference and said that, you know, we're going to make an application uh, through the city for weed and seed money. Joe Kernan gets on the air, uh, does a, um, a press conference and said, there's no weed and seed money available. So I called Digger Phelps. And I, if you've ever talked to Digger Phelps, what I'm going to say is not going to surprise you. He has a very foul mouth. He's a very direct person. So I remember calling him in Washington, and there's this 15-second pause before he responds. And then he just lets go of this torrent of profanity. And he basically said, you tell that SOB that he's lying. So I said, can I say that? And he goes, yeah, you tell him that I said he's lying. I'm a direct. So I send another press release out and they come out and they say, so you talked to Digger Phelps and what did he say about what Joe Kernan said? And I said, he's lying. So the next day, um, Denise, Joe Kernan's secretary calls me and she says, Mario, Joe wants to talk to you. And I said, Denise, if Joe wants to talk to me, have him call me. So about 10 minutes later, and you know his voice is kind of a raspy voice, and he says, Mario, this is Joe. He goes, what do you want? And I go, I, I don't want anything from you. I want to be able to sit on my front porch and read my newspaper and drink a cup of coffee. Um, 
I, I guess Joe's thoughts were that I could be bought. And I think that's how they did business in South Bend. And later on found out that's how they did business in South Bend. But to me, when I read that he had, he had died uh, this week, you know, I struggled with, I don't, as a pastor, I hold no bitterness against Joe Kernan. Uh, in fact, we had a real poignant meeting um, earlier this year. I attended the hearing on the South Bend police tapes. And he and I were the only spectators at that time in the courtroom. When I walked in, he was sitting uh, with a jury in the jury box. And I, I was sitting in uh, Judge Hosettler's uh, courtroom only has like three or four rows of pews uh, of seats. So I came benches and I came and sat down the, the second bench uh, uh, before you actually stepped into the area where the lawyers were at. And I noticed Joe sitting by the, uh, the, in the jury box. And, and uh, so the bailiff comes to him and says, Governor, you have to move. Now, you have to understand what I'm going to explain to you. I'm going to explain the significance. So he gets, Joe gets up, and he starts toward me with his hand extended, smiling. Joe Kernan hated me. I ran in 1994 as his opponent. I announced in 1993 and uh, was running as a Republican candidate for office against him. But I thought it was so, it was such a poignant moment because at any time Joe and I were together in public, he was so paranoid that he would make sure that he left. Um, the year Notre Dame went 12 and 0, I think, the, the uh, there was the city put out a um, uh, a poster that's you know Notre Dame twelve and zero and you could get it through the mayor's office. So my son, who was seven years old, and I went up to the fourteenth floor to get it. And I'm standing at the counter to get this, and Joe comes out of his office and he goes, he stands and he puts his hands on his knees and he says, Mario, I'm still here. I'm still the mayor. Fast forward to the courtroom. Uh, a few months ago, when he's heading towards me with his hands out, his hand out, like he's going to shake my hand. He's got a smile. Joe had Alzheimer's then. He was in the advanced stages of it. My heart went out to him. It went out to him. And, and I realized how ridiculous it would look if he and I sat together, to, not to me, but to some of his supporters. So I, I just kind of steered him to the bench in front of me and said, Governor, you should, this is where you should sit. And he thanked me. But I, I had to reflect. I, I want people to know that the things that are saying or that I'm saying are from firsthand experience with Joe. Uh, they're based on fact. They're not based on bitterness. Uh, I pray he had an opportunity to make peace with God. I really do. But Joe was a despot. Uh, and I think it depends on, see, I was a direct threat not only to him, but the hundreds of millions of dollars that he controlled in governmental contracts. And I think that people need to understand around the world that when you talk about American democracy, there's a lot of stories where American democracy has failed. And here, as recently as Pete Buttigieg, uh, which is another story, uh, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment. We, we have a, a government, a local government, that's so encrusted uh, by corruption and so multi-layered, it reaches downstate that you you really wonder if there's if democracy exists. Well, Peter. Uh, of course, the whole idea was is that we weren't a democracy, and uh, well, yeah, it was supposed the, to be a republic. And the founders right. were trying to say, no, we're a republic. Exactly. And John Wesley and the British said, 
they don't really, even republics don't work. Exactly. Because they would devolve quickly into a democracy. Right. And then, then who claims to be the voice of the people, right? Who, who is, you know, representing the voice of the people? And it's usually going to be the wealthy and those who have the power to manipulate. And maybe, Mike, that's where you're going we to have go. No, we have no government that functions in the absence of a moral people. Right. That's what John Adams said. And I think what you saw over this period of time is the moral corruption of the entire society of the entire society of South Bend, Indiana. So I arrived here in 1979. I was supposed to be an assistant. I was an assistant professor on a tenure-track contract at St. Mary's. And as a result, I got introduced to, to the faculty. And there was just something that wasn't right here. You know, I had no illusions about small towns, or I came from Philadelphia. Uh, I had some sense that this was going to be a Catholic place because it's a Catholic place hired me, big Catholic place across the street. I had some sense of what the Catholic Church stood for when it came to certain issues, like abortion. Mm -hmm. And I started uh, speaking out on those things and uh, natural family planning against contraception, wrote uh, articles in the local newspaper, uh, and those articles got, got me fired. Uh, because the feminists, what, you, what happened here is that there was a subversion of Catholic education that took place during this period of time. And I didn't know anything about it, and no one would tell me. So when I went to the MLA convention, I walked in with my folding bicycle, and I sat down and I said, what's the relationship between feminism and Catholicism at St. Mary's College? And whoever it was um, looked at me and said, can you unfold that bicycle? I said, yeah. I can unfold that bicycle. So I got the job because I had a folding bicycle. I suppose this, I think that there was a bigger plan here. I mean, God uh, put a cloak over me, a cloak of invisibility over me so he could get me out here. Uh, so I ended up thinking, there's something wrong here. Mm -hmm. There's really something wrong. And I had the sense so strong that I thought, I'm just getting out of academia. And I'm just going to concentrate on figuring out what happened to the Catholic Church during the period of time when I was out of it, either uh, out in, uh, as an apostate, as a late teenager, or out of the country uh, in Germany, uh, where I came back to the faith, uh, or in graduate school. So we're talking about a 10-year period where I'm thinking, what, what happened here? And that's got me uh, thinking about that and sort of delving into the whole thing. And I ended up doing, talking about it here. At the end of this book, it's basically that what happened is that Logos came to the New World after leaving Europe and found a place here. The, Logos is God, and Logos is the understanding of God, and it found a place here as Thomism at Notre Dame University, and it was strangled in its cradle by two wicked men. One of them was Theodore Hesburgh, and the other one was Ernan McMullen, the Irish uh, uh, head of the philosophy department. And they did it for money, just the same way Judas betrayed Jesus Christ. They did, and this was, but this was federal money, and it was uh, very compelling. And they clear, they made clear that the National Institute for Science and things like this were not going to give money to a place that promoted Thomism. No way, Jose. And so they strangled it and put this, you know, stupid. Uh, logical positive in its place, and nobody did that. And long story, but it's in the book. That's what I came to see, <clears throat> and that's why I decided I got to get out of academia. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I could look for the truth, whereas you can't do that as a professor. You can't do that. And so, I'm uh, 
a member of the health club here that was the hospital health club. And it was in the building on the East Race. And most, it, there were a lot of influential people there in that health club. And it was it, almost like a real club, you know, where you actually, you know, get together and talk to people. And I'm in the locker room. And there are two guys who are very influential who are saying, what are we going to do about the mayor? Who's going to run for mayor? And I said, isn't this obvious? It should be Joe Kernan. I said it. Why did you say <laughs> I said it because he's a, he's a war hero. It's obvious. You know, he looks like a war hero. I, I didn't say it, but he looked like John McCain. Or was something. that the time he was a controller? Of yeah, the he was controller right, at that exactly. point. So uh, yeah. Roger Parent had brought him out of private right. practice. He was already in public life. And I said, it's obvious. It's Joe Kernan. Just from looking on the outside. But you didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything. I, I knew what I read in the paper when we had a newspaper here. It was called the South Bend Tribune, and you'd read about the guy, and he had a you know nice face, and he had a nice presence, and blah, 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 and Notre Dame, had kind of a Notre Dame connection. I, that's all I knew. And I said, it's obvious, just from an outsider point of view. Okay, so that's fine. That's, and he became mayor. And I don't know whether, uh, you know, who those, I don't even know who those people were. So... That's fine. He's, he's mayor. Uh, and uh, we start a rowing club. And it turns out that Joe rows. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're fellow rowers, you know. I mean, this is camaraderie. It's like the club, you know. Well, that, that didn't, didn't mean anything. Uh, uh, Joe did not, uh, just, he, he just didn't associate. See, I remember him when he, when he became governor by chance by the death of the incumbent. Well, he was lieutenant governor. He was lieutenant, and then he inherited it after the death. He would show up with an armada of boats, <laughs> and they were motor boats with DNR officials cruising behind him. Really stupid thing to do because the motorboat ruins the, the surface of the river. It's no fun rowing on that. But anyway, so I'm rowing one day. I'm, I do this a lot, and I'm at rowing on high water. It must have been May. I actually, I think it was May 4th, to be honest with you. It was my birthday, and it was also the day that Osama bin Laden had just been murdered. And I'm rowing, and there's this psychopath on a jet ski who is a member of the DNR, okay? And he stops me on the river. Now, you don't stop on the river, especially in May when the water's high. You're always moving. And he starts uh, haranguing me about, uh, uh, why don't I have a uh, flotation device? I said, nobody rows with them. You can't row with a life jacket on. I said, Notre Dame goes by, you know, and I said, where, where are their flotation devices? You know what I mean? Well, that's different. That's Notre Dame. And so <laughs> I, we're back and forth. And then he says to me, give me your Social Security number. I said, I'm, I'll be damned if I'll give you my Social Security number. And at this point, I look up, and I'm heading right toward a bridge abutment at about six miles an hour because that's the speed that the river is right now. So I start rowing to get from hitting the, well, he, he thinks I'm trying to make a getaway. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean I, I, you mean I can row faster than you can ride on your jet ski? What, are you kidding me? So then he's furious at me. I'm going to take you in. You're going to be arrested now. No, I'm thinking, so I'm thinking, well, I've got to get back to the dock. So I'm rowing back to the dock, and he's got one hand on the jet ski and the other on his cell phone. And he's talking to somebody. So then he pulls up, and he says to me, you're Joe Kernan, aren't you? <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm not going to say a word here. Well, Joe, he says, 
I'm going to let you off, but just be careful. And at that point, he roars away on his jet ski and kicks up a wave and swamps my boat. And thanks for nothing. Okay, so that's that's uh, rowing. So it turns out that uh, Joe finally discovers who I am. Do, do you know who I am? Do you really? Because there's this kind of animosity every time. When I see Joe Kernan, I think I better walk to the other side of the street because every time I get near this guy, there's some type of trouble. So now we're in the same club, and suddenly uh, I get a call from the the director of the boathouse now. Now we're in the, new, the old Notre Dame boathouse. It's like a big deal. And uh, the director of the boathouse says, Joe says you stole his boat. I, I stole his boat? What are you talking about? I bought the boat from Doug Hunt. No, no, Joe says it's not your boat. I said, what, what, what's, what's the issue here? There are three boats. There have always been three boats, private boats. I bought one of them. What, what's, well, you've got to come down. We've got to have a meeting. Well. We get there, and Joe's there, and uh, Doug Hunt is there, and I'm there, and the head of the rowing club, and he's going on and on about, it's not my boat. I said, Joe, they're, they're all the same. I mean, if you want, you, you, uh, you, I'll take that boat if you want, but I'm telling you right now, this is my boat, because I bought it. And I said, I'll tell you, I point out the skeg, I put the skeg in. You know, that's not your, that's your boat because I fixed your boat for you and thanks for nothing. You never thanked me for it. And then he says to me, well, maybe you better get a lawyer. A lawyer? And he said, yeah, and I can recommend a lawyer for you. Get Mario Sims. <laughs> and suddenly everything became yeah. clear to me. Yeah. And suddenly I realized that this man had a very guilty conscience. He could not get this man out of his mind. And the reason he hated me was because I think he saw me and you on a, on a YouTube broadcast or something like that. And so I had become uh, toxic by association. Yeah. It's like if you, if you associate with unclean people, you become unclean. It's like that's why you have to walk to the other side of the road when you see the, fa the, uh, the Samaritan lying on the road. Don't want to touch him because you'll become unclean. So I had become unclean by associating with Mario. Now, this, this is significant. This is significant because it's proof that there is a conscience, yeah. no matter what you say. Now, this man was a baptized Catholic. Uh, he went to Notre Dame. He, he called himself a Catholic in public life. Every time he supported abortion, he announced that he was a Catholic. Well, they're not compatible. Uh, and he was ferocious in his support of abortion. Absolutely ferocious. And everybody knew it. And the Catholics uh, didn't like him because of that. And he knew they didn't like him. So he, there was uh, Bishop Crowley. Uh, had his anniversary of something or other, being a bishop, being a priest. And Joe kind of uh, horned his way in to give the announcement. And uh, he started schmoozing Bishop Crowley. Well, Bishop Crowley didn't want anything to do with this guy. He knew what he was like. And then uh, Joe, at one point, a graduate of St. Joe High School, he's going to speak at St. Joe High School, and Darcy wouldn't let him speak. So he knew that there was a stigma attached to him because of his uh, uh, promotion of abortion. But deeper than that uh, was his 
the fact that he could not get Mario off his mind. No, why? Is that because you got the 26 years? He felt he was well, responsible? So you tell me why. You know, be you know better I mean, than everybody I. Everybody always thought that was Michael Barnes that gave you the 26 no, years. No, actually, actually, let's, let's kind of go back to, to set up how Joe came into power. He, his wife, Maggie, worked for First Source Bank, uh, and Joe initially sold skids uh, in, uh, in industry, uh, met... Uh, um, at a bank function with Mrs. Rackland, who is her and her sister, uh, Mrs. Layton, were the two wealthiest people uh, in St. Joe County, and quite possibly still are. Uh, but so e eventually, Mrs. Uh, Rackland uh, took a liking to him and got him uh, to be the auditor. I think at that time, the city auditor uh, was the office he was in, one of the accounting functions, and was setting him up to be mayor because of his background. And Joe was, if you ever talked to Joe, he, he, had a, he had a personality that was very political. I mean, he could charm. I remember going to, uh, during the time we, we were, uh, I initially run for office in 1992 as a county council uh, representative, lost that, and which kind of set me up for running for mayor. Uh, in 1994 against Joe, but I know the day that we were at Dingus Day, which is the big celebration here in South Bend. After where, Easter. Yeah, after Easter, and you just all kind of go to different clubs. We were at the Westside Democratic Club, which was the black club, which was demolished later on by Barnes because the black Democrats had decided to back me in running for, for mayor. That's why it's plot over now. It, it It's no longer existed. But did they I'm, put salt? Did they put salt in it? Very well, but I mean, they made a point of flattening it. Um, uh, but I remember going, you know, we, everybody would go, you'd stop at different places and all the candidates would come in, you'd give a speech. I remember listening to Joe. Joe's kind of person, he would come in, roll his, he was the, to me, the, the original sleeve roll up, tie pulled down, and he would get a beer. And he'd say, the beer is cold and the sausage is hot, and everyone would cheer. That's the kind of guy he was. You know, he's just a you know, well-met guy, and everybody liked him. And then, you know, so he was a devastating campaigner. Really, you know, he was really good at what he did. So, so 1993, the, the next mayoral election is 95. I'm positioning myself to run against him in 95 as a Republican gaining support uh, across the board, um, and... That's Jeanette uh, and uh, Murdoch, right? Jeanette uh, Moeller and... Jeanette Moeller, but... but Murdoch, the, 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 they were, the, were they back helping you? Yeah, Christine Murdoch was. Jeanette, actually, who was a, the party chair, was Butch Morgan's, uh, the old Democratic Party chairman. That was his grade school teacher, and they were very close to each other. Mm -hmm. In fact, a month before, you, you, you realize this incestuous relationship in politics here, but uh, a month before the election in 1992, when I was running for county council, Jeanette calls Dr. Dennis Moran. I don't know if you ever met Dennis. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah I did. Okay. He was my campaign manager, uh, professor of, uh, uh, he wrote uh, Review of Politics at Notre Dame. Really neat guy. And, and so he calls me and he says, this is a month before the election in 1992, he calls me and says, hey, he said, Jeanette Moeller, the Republican chair, just called me and said the $1,200 she loaned us, she wants back. And I'm like, Dennis, a month before the election? We got a chance to win. This is for county council. And he said, yeah, I know. But he had, Dennis had always, he had interesting background. 
Mike Barnes, the prosecutor, let's bring him into this, the picture now, uh, was the J. Edgar Hoover of St. Joe County. The man struck fear in everyone because he had dirt on everyone. Everyone. Uh, so uh, Dennis had worked for Mike, uh, uh, for Mike Barnes as in his campaigns several times and just got sickened and left. So Dennis kind of had the insight and gave me the insight, but Mike was a, a person that was feared. And you have to understand the interplay between Joe Kernan and Mike Barnes. Joe, J Joe relied on Mike to be the hitman. And within that structure, they, Mike employed a guy um, by the name of Tim Corbett, who was a South Bend police officer who has a history of just doing some incredible criminal things and in which we've detailed we'll talk about late, that later on so how did I get to where I got okay um, 1993 I announced I think in September I'm forming my campaign committee to run in 1995 and so we announced I'm running for mayor uh, my wife who had gotten so tired of I would my wife at the time my son's mother I would come home and she would hang up the phone and she'd be in tears and because I was constantly getting death threats. House had gotten shot into twice and she couldn't take it, so she filed for divorce. And where were the death threats kind of originating from, philosophically? I mean, where, where are these death threats? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone in the street was that. We're not talking about high-level uh, Colombian drug dealers in South Bend. So, yeah, yeah, you know, this is corruption in South Bend. Yeah, you people. could know. I mean, this this was from high high corruption. Exactly, exactly. So, so, and I'd been keep in mind, I'd been, I made friends uh, with high-ranking police officials, who even to this day I don't want to reveal their names, but um, one of them had told me that the issue that the police had with Mike Barnes is that um, he would um, take drugs as payment uh, and in return would appear to initially sentence, sentence the drug dealers uh, to high sentences uh, to get the media coverage and then a year later would quietly uh, modify their sentences to work I, release. Yeah, I know that. You know okay. Gary Spaulding. Right, right exactly. Oh, Gary yeah. Gary Spaulding yeah. and uh, people know um, Dwight Johnson, I think, and somebody, they lived right in the bad part of town there in right. Newvale and somebody stole stuff from their house. And these guys are, you know, Christian vigilantes. Okay. And they went out and they found them, captured them, took them in and uh, to Barnes. Okay, we got them. Okay, okay, cold. We got the evidence. They have our stuff. And then they walk out on the street and there are those guys set free. Yeah. It was like, what's the game going on here? I remember that. They were just like, couldn't believe it. The, the police, um, and that's one of the things that... Um, that, that started the fire that was heating up that uh, would eventually, you know, immolate me in this flame uh, uh, that came about in 1994. Um, I would be the voice of the senior police officials um, who would, were infuriated by the corruption in, in the county. Uh, in the county prosecutor's office. I had one high-ranking police official tell me there was a meeting at Notre Dame the state police held, uh, a demonstration of their uh, 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 drug dog. And this officer walked in uh, and sat down, and uh, he said the state police came with their dog, and the dog went over to a chair. There was a black overcoat on the chair, and the dog alerted on the overcoat. It was Mike Barnes's overcoat. And this officer said, you know, I wanted to arrest him right there. He said, but who would prosecute him? 
So one of the things I did was met with, uh, at that point, Senator Coates and Senator Luger. I met with Senator Coates in person and Senator Luger's representative at the Burger King uh, uh, in downtown South Bend. And because the senior police officials were afraid, uh, there was an opening uh, in uh, the uh, district, U.S. District Attorney, uh, Northwest District, uh, Northern Indiana was open and they were pushing Barnes to get that position. The senior police officials didn't want him to get that position because it would shut down effectively all their drug investigations and any other federal investigation. So I met with Senator Luger, uh, Senator uh, Coates himself and Senator Luger's representative to make that plea. And of course, during that time, one of the party functionaries, uh, uh, David Reedy, who was an attorney, walked in uh, and saw us in the Burger King. And so Barnes knew of this meeting, and that just kind of threw more gas on the fire. You know, so it was a drumbeat that was starting. I'd already called Joe Kernan a liar based on what Digger Phelps had told me, and I was opposing this drug house that was controlled by uh, a family that had gone to school with, uh, with uh, uh, Joe Kernan. Joe Kernan was pushing for the College Football Hall of Fame to be here, if you can remember, and I was the head remonstrator with, that, with regard to that. And Joe, in fact, I have a cassette where Joe and I debated. The, we were really, we were always seen uh, uh, as tandem. You know, people, the, the newspaper would love the articles about Joe and, and Mario clashing. We were on WVPE uh, debating uh, this College Football Hall of Fame, and Joe said it, would, it was going to cost $11 million, but it wasn't going to cost the citizens one thin dime. And I said, well, $11 million, how many people is going to employ? And he said, four. And I said, well, you know, 11 million can go to an industrial concern and you could probably employ 100 people. Well, the reality is it costs, it costs much more than what he said. One, it would never cost the taxpayers more than one thin dime. And it cost the taxpayers over $12 million. And up until two years ago, it was still on the city budget at $500,000 a year to main, just to maintain it. After years, I think it moved in 1997 to 98. So it was things like that that, that I began um, uh, creating a real problem for jerk Joe Kernan. At the same time, I'm asking for a special prosecutor to, to prosecute drug crimes in South Bend. No, no, Mike, you didn't know about any of this no. in your circles. No. You just know that you had recommended Joe Kernan to be mayor, and he became... I didn't know anything about that. Well, you know, outwardly... I, that... I remember vaguely, you know, articles in the, in the South Bend Tribune, but I was not. I was involved in other things. What were we talking about? The mid mid nineties. Yeah, it would be you know ninety ninety one ninety two right in that area. I was not involved in local issues at all at that time. I was writing. I think I I had just been appointed uh, biographer of Cardinal Kroll. I was involved in doing archival research at the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. There were other books that were coming into my mind, so I was just getting all these books out of of my system during this period of time. Outwardly, Joe Kernan was the perfect candidate, as Mike said. I mean, he was a PO, POW, uh, naval officer, uh, and just uh, a very dynamic person. And in, in when you met him, you know, he's the type of guy that could regale you with stories. I mean, he was the prototypical politician. You know, he was a guy's guy. And but this is back when, when people were socializing in America at its height. In yeah, other words, and, there was Dan, you know, he would socialize. I mean, sure, the young sure. people were together in mass. And so you learned how to really 
become a people person. Right, exactly. Uh, but there was the other side, and that was the side of the despot, and that's what I'm going with this thing. That, that's why it's kind of a duality when you talk about his memory. There was what Mike, Mike said when you first saw the guy. I mean, he's a perfect guy for mayor. But then it was a dark side. And it was a dark side that was horribly dark. I mean, the lightest thing that happened of the darkness was my mom worked. My mom at that time in her 60s, she worked part-time at code enforcement. Because my profile was rising and I was uh, going against them, you know, I, one day she called for me to pick her up from her job and she was in tears. She came out of the county and said she had been fired by Joe Kernan on the orders of Joe Kernan simply because she was my son. And she, I mean, I was her son and she only worked part time at code enforcement, okay? But he would be really petty. Uh, he was a very petty person. He's a very paranoid person. But do you think there's any an, anything to do with how what Notre Dame is as a university, that he goes through Notre Dame, he's in the I, military. I, I mean, do you think these places contributed to his corruption? Well, Where's his corruption coming from? Where's the dark side coming from? Well, okay. Other than original sin. I, okay, to me as a pastor, I, I would quickly go to Ephesians, what Paul said in 6.10 through 12, that South Bend to me is the perfect example. Once you look at those scriptures and you sit back and you, and you just reflect on them, this is a stronghold of Satan here. Uh, I come to understand that it, it is very possible that, um, you know, Satan, who can't be everywhere, obviously is not omnipresent, but there, because of the environment, you can allow demonic uh, presence to flourish. We saw that with the result of a Pete Buttigieg. And yeah, there's a, cl there's a clear instance of okay. a crossover. Okay, so uh, if in Pete's uh, autobiography, he talked about uh, going to the people here who were in charge of the city of South Bend. And that meant going to some kingmaker, and it meant going to Butch Morgan. And Butch Morgan was, at that time, the chairman of the Democratic Party in South Bend. And Butch Morgan had the reputation of being a, a traditional Democrat. I mean, s sympathetic to traditional Democratic issues like uh, higher wages, unions, that, that type of thing. Okay? But he didn't have a uh, POW uh, you know, pilot behind him. He didn't have Notre Dame behind him. He was just kind of this kind of goofy-looking guy. Who well, are you talking about? Butch Morgan. No. Butch, no. No. Butch, no. Butch, Butch, Butch represented the, Dem the older Democratic Party. True, but I'm now, saying he did it of himself. Now, I, now, now, it doesn't matter what he was right. in, in himself. He right. was what he represented. Now, I made contact with that through a guy by the name of Bernie Bauer, who was a state senator yeah. for a long time. Now, Bernie Bauer came from the old Notre Dame, and that meant, you know, like after, during the 50s, he went there in the 50s, uh, he worked for uh, uh, Ball here in Mich Mishawaka, wasn't making enough money for his family, started a soft water operation, and then got involved in politics. And he represented the old Democratic Party. Now, there was a revolution that took place around this time, and it took place beginning in 68, with the, the riots and, and Daly being discredited at the Chicago Convention, an embarrassment, a deliberate embarrassment to Daly because the troops were out there embarrassing him on the street. And the culmination of it was in 72 with when McGovern was nominated and the Democratic Party had been taken over by, and that's the group we have to name here. Right. You know what I mean? There's some group that took it over, you know, Acid, abortion, and something else. That's the way that Republicans talked about it. And at this point, Richard Nixon stole the heart of the Democratic Party. All of those Catholic ethnics 
who were voted for labor and that type of thing, they all went over to the Republican Party, and Nixon got elected in 68, and he got reelected in 72 by appealing to ethnic figures like yeah. Frank Rizzo, mayor of Philadelphia, who was a Democrat, right. but he was an Italian ethnic, and those Catholics were now going to be Republicans, one of the biggest transformations in, in uh, history. And Bernie was part of this. He represented that old Democratic Party that had been uh, uh, abused and eliminated, and then suddenly the Equal Rights Amendment comes to Indiana. Now, this is Phyllis Schlafly, mm -hmm. and this was uh, uh, a slam dunk. We're, are you against rights? Are you against equal rights for women? I mean, shame on you. Yeah. And But Phyllis Schlafly could mobilize every single state legislature in the United States of America. She was a genius yeah. when it came to terrorizing state legislatures. And state legislatures are representative government, in a sense, much more so than, than federal yeah. legislators. And so she came to Indiana, and it failed. And Bernie Bauer voted against the Equal Rights Amendment, and that by doing that, he signed his death warrant yeah. as a politician. And the party threw him overboard, and they appointed Doug Hunt as his successor, and I, I bought my boat from, yeah. from Doug Hunt. And that was the beginning of the new Republican Party. And so Butch Morgan comes along, and he's kind of like that old uh, representative of that old thing. And here's this guy, Pete Buttigieg, and Butch doesn't like him. And Butch is an important guy. Yeah. I don't know whether he knew that he was homosexual. Pete was concealing his homosexuality right. at this point. Uh, and so uh, Joe, uh, uh, Pete goes over Butch's head and goes to Joe. And Joe, at this point, suddenly, and I'm reading this in the newspaper, wait a minute, Butch Morgan just went to jail. Right. <laughs> How did that happen? Right. And, oh, wait a minute. It was Joe Kernan that sent Butch Morgan to jail. Yeah. Joe Kernan said, this guy forged my signature on that petition. Well, he had enough power to make it stick, and Butch went to jail, and that's the end of the opposition to Pete Buttigieg in the Democratic Party. Okay, now, Pete uh, is this... Now, to get back to Notre Dame, uh, in 1980, I met Pete's father, Joe. Joe just arrived. I was still uh, on the faculty at St. Mary's. Joe arrives, and he's in the English department at Notre Dame, and I'm in the English department at St. Mary's. And I'm trying to talk to this guy, and I'm realizing this is one of the most arrogant sons of bitch that I have ever met in my entire life. And I've met a lot of arrogant sons of bitches. Mm -hmm. And this guy is going on, and all he could do was smirk. So I'm starting to talk about the word world the world, the flesh, and the devil, the way the world, word world is used mm -hmm. in scripture. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean a round ball. Right. The, you know, world system. It, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's the powers of this right. world. Cosmos. It's, yeah. it's, it's, right. uh, it's, it's the devil's reign. And I'm trying to explain this to him. He just, no, that's stupid. It's, that's that's stupid. It was too Christian. Well, that's, that's and it's the so, same. So this is, this is Joe. And right. I'm thinking, okay, and then uh, I leave. Then he becomes a power at Notre Dame. Now, Joe never, uh, uh, in that article I wrote, there's one book he has in the Notre Dame library. He had, at this time when I started looking at this, he had an endowed chair and had one book in the library, and it turns out this book was his doctoral dissertation on James Joyce, and it was full of all the cliches that plague doctoral dissertations about modern figures like James Joyce. It was terrible. And how did this guy get to be 
uh, and have an endowed chair when that's all you ever produce. Well, he did it uh, by being an expert on Antonio Gramsci. And Antonio Gramsci was the Italian communist who understood that culture is more important than economics. And I'll explain to you how to take over the culture of a conservative society like Italy. But guess what? Notre Dame was exactly the same thing. Yeah. And so you can play on this, this kind of Christian rhetoric about the victim and suddenly picks up Foucault, who, mm -hmm. who was a Catholic, right. but a homosexual. And so he knew how to play those strings, you know. And as a result, uh, he took over. And so we now fast forward to suddenly, wait a minute, it looks as if Joe's son is running for mayor. Isn't this interesting? I wonder what the connection is. And at this point, uh, it's a primary. It's got to be a primary because nobody ever wins the real election here. And Mike Hammond's running. And Mike Hammond should have won. I mean, he was the local boy. He was a handsome guy. He was the protege. He was the Catholic champion. He was, had been uh, uh, taught by Charlie Rice and by Ed Murphy. Uh, groomed to be a kind of Catholic leader, <clears throat> and pe peculiar things happened. His wife died in South America, but he couldn't, he couldn't manage a campaign. So when Hammond's representative uh, comes to my house and asks for my vote, I'm just going to vote for him anyway, I said to him, what's, what's Mike's position on the gay rights ordinance? Mm -hmm. Well, he says, Mike believes in live and let live. Well, no, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. You just gave the wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so there you have that aspect of it. And then you've got, uh, what was the other guy's name? Ryan Dvorak. He's running, too. And it turns out that there's a group at Notre Dame called the Gay and Lesbian Association or something. And they endorse Ryan Dvorak. Now, you can't tell me that this wasn't some type of inside deal yeah. to distract attention from the fact that Pete is a homosexual. They knew that. They knew that. And they, this was to, to fool us to think, he's, he's just a local guy. He went to Harvard. Yeah. My son went to Harvard. He lived two houses down. Yeah. Uh, he was a valedictorian at St. Joe High School. My son was valedictorian at St. Joe High School. This is a natural thing. I didn't vote for him, but I mean, I could see this thing forming in my mind. Well, it was all blue smoke and mirrors because the fix was in. And what you saw here was the merger of local corruption and national academic intellectual corruption, which had been festering at Notre Dame for by 40, 30, 40 years by that point. And, but Joe Kerner was a, was a key element. So, but but he gave you the, the, the answer to what about Notre Dame? What, you know, Notre Dame is not an active plotter, was not an active plotter in uh, wrongfully convicting me. But what happened is it essentially gives tacit approval and throws shadow over. There's a there's a there's a more important plan than Mario Sims, and and why should we get involved? Why should we stoop to intercede when we've got a greater plan here? We've got a we, we've got bigger things, and and so just as he said that Joe was able to remove Butch Morgan, that was the power behind it. You know, we go back to here's 1993. My wife is at the time is just she was not a fighter. She files for divorce. The problem is my son, uh, who is by then eight or nine years old, does not want to live with his mother, wants to live with his dad. She's got a problem. They fix the problem. Okay, why don't we do this? We get rid of him for you, meaning Mario, then you have uh, custody. So initially, and she admitted, 
1994, January 22nd, my wife and I, even though the divorce was filed, we continue to have sexual relationship. I leave the house. The next day, a Saturday, I wake up. My uh, answering machine light is flashing. I answer it. It's South Bend Police saying that we need you to come and talk to us. I call my attorney, David Albert, who used to be a priest, uh, and, and he says, well, you know, uh, let's go down there and talk to him. Uh, my wife had been for the last two or three months, if I would go down to the house, we had rental property down the street. So I, I lived on the same block down the street in a rental property. That way I could have our son for two days. She can have our son for two days doing the divorce. She had called the police a number of times on if I rang the doorbell to get my son. She'd called the next thing I see was a police car coming up and they were saying I was disturbing her peace. Well, I'm, you know, it's my wife and it's a divorce. It's kind of messy. I remember the last time the police, we had just had sex and I was standing in the bathroom in our marital home shaving. And an officer, I heard this voice, Mr. Sims, can I talk to you? And I go, yeah. So I wiped the shaving cream off and he said, your wife is, she wants you to leave before she goes to work. And I go, what? He goes, let me talk to you for a minute. So I you know, finished the shaving cream and we go outside. He says, look, you're running for mayor. He said, when that call goes out, the media gets it. He said, you need to be very careful. He said, I had the officers go to another channel. He said, I can't tell you. He's, you know, it's your wife. I understand. You need to be careful. Well, to me, it's my wife. We were married 11 years at that point. It's my wife. And we knew that I was going to be attacked. We assumed Gwen Steins, who used to be the um, um, addictions counselor for the South Bend School Corporation, had met me one day and told me she thought that they were going to plant drugs on me. We knew it was going to be attacked, so I secretly made plans at the South Bend Medical Foundation to take a drug test every month. So if that happened, we could say, ah, you know, you know. So that's what we didn't think it would come from, from inside. Certainly not from my wife. Well, so this Saturday, David Albert and I go down to the police station. Sitting there is Tim Corbett who is not a sex crime investigator, but reports directly to Mike Barnes. I've never been in trouble in my life. It doesn't, you know, I'm indignant that I'm sitting in a police station for, you know, at that point, I don't know what it is. And they tell me, well, where are you at last night? I was up with my wife. Did you guys have sex? Yeah. It turned out that if I had said no, I would not have been arrested that day. Because when you say yes, all they've, they've already proven, all they got to prove is she said no. You've just admitted to the act of sex. So all he had to prove from that point is she said no. She began being a very difficult uh, witness. So that's when Tim Corbett gets involved and starts planning evidence and starts pressuring witnesses. There was a inmate. Uh, they had moved me from one cell. I was in a five-man cell. I got moved. What was from, the charge? Uh, rape? I got yeah, rape and uh, burglary breaking into my own house and sexually assaulting my wife. Here's a problem. Dave Frank, who I said, uh, we used to do a, a radio show and then we would leave the radio show and go over to the old uh, uh, Comcast studios. Yeah, and do the TV. Right, and we do a TV show. So mm -hmm. we do the, the AM radio show, which led up to Rush then. So we were on from like 11 to 12. We'd have lunch at Dave's uh, restaurant, Frank's uh, Red Hots. And then we went to Comcast. From two to four, Dave and I are on the air taping our show. At trial, they say that sometime before 
I had broken in the house and was waiting for my wife to come home. They had Carla Pete, who lived in a rental property. We had three rental properties. She lived at 1107 Johnson. Uh, the marital house was at 1050 North Johnson. 1107 was two blocks uh, uh, off the corner. So you could sit and see our house. Carla Pete testified she got home. She worked at Notre Dame in housekeeping. She got home at 6.30. Her pipes were frozen in her rental house. So she sat in her window watching our window from 3.30 until she sees my wife come in at 10 minutes to 5. She never saw me go in the house. She went down, rang the doorbell, couldn't have, hear anything, and left. So the, the state's um, uh, position was I'd broken in before 3.30. So she, they were using her testimony against you? or Well, they were saying that sometime before 3.30, I'd broken the house hours there, which wasn't possible because I was on camera until 4 o'clock. No, that's not connected to Sherry Pete, who was the governor. No, 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 no. no it wasn't. But Well, and, and then other things happened. Uh, they took a watch that was in my house and planted it at some woman's back stoop who claimed she gave me a gun. They had moved me from a cell, put me up into a bigger cell where a guy claimed that I confessed to him. All that, that was in the trial. county, so I, I, right, was right. See, I was seeing you. I saw you then. Well, yeah, you were coming in. So I get convicted. I'm sent before Judge Man, uh, uh, Jenny Pitts Jordan. Didn't know until a year later that her daughter had been sexually molested by a black man. Found guilty. Yeah, sentence, we all knew that. Sentence of 27 years. Uh, and did 12 and a half years. And, and last year, in fact, we filed uh, this multi-page uh, petition to transfer challenging all the things we talked about. The Kernan Buttigieg corruption that effectively denies justice to anyone unless you're an insider. We might just, if you guys got a few more minutes, we might sure. just keep going here just a little bit. Is that all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay, well, I'm just kind of so we have enough time to wrap it up. So, so yeah, I, I want to tie in what Mike was saying because he pointed out with, with Butch Morgan how Joe Kernan could say he signed my signature and Butch is gone because what happened was, and I'd heard when I ran against Joe that we were told that Joe was going to be, it was so important from the win 95. Uh, that election because he was only going to be in office a short while and he was going to be appointed lieutenant governor. And that's how Steve Lickey came in. Right. So I, if I had a one, I would have entered because now he's a lieutenant governor. He's downstate and he's got access. Well, O'Bannon died. He now becomes governor. And Mike Barnes is now uh, Indiana Court of Appeals. Uh, Terry Crone, whose mom, Beverly Crone, was an icon in the Democratic Party here, is now Indiana Court of Appeals. Well, who reviews my uh, appeals? Indiana Court of Appeals. Um, so this thing is so multi-layered and so structured that it became literally impossible. Well, what happened last year was a reporter came and told me that Tim Corbett uh, had bragged to her that he had set me up. For uh, I think what we'll do here is for public access, we're going to have to stop for the hour. Sure. But for YouTube, we can keep going. Okay. Okay, is that's that all fine. right? So we can just kind of wrap this up? Yeah, yeah I'm let's fine. wrap it up. Okay. okay. So that, Mike, we're going to go a little bit for, a little bit longer here. So, so and, and the things that I'm saying, anybody, I'm not going to read from it, but I just want to let people know that if you want to find the whole story uh, that Mike had started talking about uh, when he mentioned um, Butch, Butch Morgan, and how Joe was able. This was filed on uh, June 8th, 2020. It's appellant's petition to transfer past Mario Sim versus Pete Buttigieg et al. Uh, and the et al are members of the uh, South Bend City uh, Legal Department. 
uh, including uh, three black females uh, who were either uh, city uh, deputy uh, uh, legal officers, one's now promoted to a magistrate, uh, and Tim Corbett. Uh, and Mike Schmuel, who was uh, Pete Buttigieg's campaign manager. And what we're alleging is um, that they were aware of the corruption that led to me being wrongly convicted because in 2012, when the South Bend police tapes were exposed by Karen DePape, the director of communications, um, and the lawsuits were filed doing discovery, Karen DePape gave a deposition before uh, the uh, city attorney's office and the city deputy legal um, assistant uh, attorneys, and they asked her. Karen said they asked her 15 times what was on the tape, and she told them every time she asked, they asked her, she detailed how Tim Corbett had bragged about setting me and other black defendants up. Uh, they covered it up. We filed a lawsuit. Uh, the lawsuit was dismissed. My attorneys were uh, uh, ordered to be sanctioned. Uh, we filed in the Indiana Court of Appeals. Incredibly, Mike Barnes is on the panel at the Indiana Court of Appeals. That's going to determine if it's accepted that, or not. That dismisses the lawsuit. Which, I mean, rudimentary understanding of law tells you that this man who prosecuted me. Why? Yeah. Recuse yourself. So, so what we do then is file a petition to transfer. And the petition to transfer raises these issues. Whether the Court of Appeals has decided an important federal question in a way that conflicts with the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States by creating a de facto separate and unequal justice system that denies a black citizen me due process and equal protection of law. Whether the Court of Appeals has decided, uh, entered a decision in conflict with the decision of the Court of Appeals on the same important issue. Whether the Court of Appeals failed to follow its own precedent whether the Court of Appeals has entered a decision in conflict with the decisions of the Supreme Court as it ignored the authority vested in this court to provide by rule for the procedures employed in all the courts, whether the Court of Appeals has significantly departed from its accepted law and practice that established the principle of equality in the 14th Amendment. They just completely ignored the credible, clear, documented, specific evidence of official and judicial misconduct in my case. Right, and their, their job is to try to stop the corruption, and the, the only hope you have is that you're being mis, uh, you know, mistreated, is that ultimately you're going to find a court that's going to look at the facts. Yeah. Well, the, the problem is Joe Kearney was governor, and so my deputy prosecuting attorney, John Marnoka, was the chief judge of the St. Joseph County Superior Court. When I went to apply for a pardon, he assigns the case to himself and writes a letter to the parole boards and the governor saying, I don't deserve a pardon. Well, that's a conflict of interest. Mike Barnes, of course, that we discussed, sits on the panel that dismisses my suit. So, Mike, what do you think, you know, from your perspective, how do you put this together? All right, so I started off <laughs> as a reformer in Catholic education and then a reformer in education. And what we're seeing now is two generations of people that have been raised on basically the ideology that Joe Buttigieg introduced to Notre Dame, which is 
uh, which had been introduced to all of the universities. It's now called political correctness or woke culture, whatever it is. It is a form of racism that basically uh, is the reversal of traditional uh, American mm -hmm. racism. So mm -hmm. now if you're black, you're right, and if you're white, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you're white, you have no rights, and we're seeing this happen all across the country. We're in the middle of a revolutionary moment right now where these people uh, can now, uh, because of corrupt uh, politicians, uh, they can take over uh, areas of the United States and defy the law, declare themselves as uh, in Seattle, they declared that this was an autonomous zone. They had seceded from the United States of America. The mayor of Seattle it happens to be a lesbian by the name of Jenny Durkin, who is a Notre Dame grad. Okay, and she was appointed district attorney, a U.S. attorney for Western Washington by Obama. And the uh, mayor of Chicago another lesbian. She has a Jewish wife, so it's like the Black Jewish Alliance all over again here. Uh, she was appointed U.S. Attorney by Obama for Ohio. So you're seeing, what, what you're seeing here, large numbers of uh, people who have been morally corrupted by bad education, who have a completely revolutionary mindset because of what they picked up at places like Notre Dame, now taking over large certain segments of the population, certain areas mm -hmm. like Chicago, like Portland, where they had uh, basically Trump had to send in federal troops to protect federal buildings because they were going to be burned down by Antifa. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're in the middle of a revolution that comes about because of moral corruption. And because uh, government is not enforcing the law. Uh, the law gets enforced according to uh, your skin color now. Yeah. Uh, we have the prosecutor in Chicago, Kim, oh, Kim, Fox. Kim Fox. Kim Fox got elected with George Soros' money. She mm -hmm. did not prosecute Jesse Smollett because he had the right color skin. Yeah. Okay, uh, we have uh, a prosecutor in St. Louis. I just did an article on the attempt to remove the statue in St. Louis. The prosecutor there is Kim Gardner. She was elected with George Soros money. She comes in and she announces that she's not going to prosecute uh, marijuana crimes anymore. She files a lawsuit against her own police department saying that they are racist and con a racist conspiracy according to the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1865. And then she is now going to prosecute the, that couple that were stood outside their home defending, their, defending their home with guns. They're going to be prosecuted. So we are in the middle of a revolutionary moment that is the culmination of moral corruption promoted by the educational system, which I discovered 40 years ago. I kind of stumbled into it 40 years ago and have been protesting against it ever since. Now we're reaching a crisis. So the, the what I... What I can say is, when they moved on St. Louis, uh, you got, uh, they wanted to remove the statue of St. Louis. Well, wait a minute. He was King Louis IX of France. He lived in the 13th century. Did, did he own black slaves? Did, were there cotton plantations in Paris in the 13th? Well, what, what was this? What did he do wrong? Well, he burned the Talmud. Oh, well, how many black people know about the Talmud? Is that a big issue? Uh, I don't remember this no. being a big issue among black people. Well, it turns out that the whole thing now is becoming exposed. We're having 
Uh, the people behind it are now being exposed because there's only one group that gets upset about being against the Talmud, and that is the Jews. And there's a revolutionary cell there centered on a synagogue uh, run by a lady rabbi, and the synagogue is right next to the couple that uh, had to bring their guns out. So, I say, so this is good because the, the situation is becoming clear now. This is not about race. This is about the use and the manipulation of race by certain people who Absolutely. want to overthrow the government. And I think we had a role. Uh, I mentioned South Bend. The fact that we did not have these type of disturbances here, I think is, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I think it's because of our efforts. Right. I think that that video we did of the two of us with the four of us with Vincent, yeah. I think it had an effect. It did. Because here were four people, four local people who said, no, we understand what's going on. It's not black-white. It's the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And I think that's exactly what had to happen in St. Louis. It did happen in St. Louis. I, I, I know it happened in St. Louis because what this guy doing, this guy, Umar Lee, he's a white guy. He was, his grandparents raised him as a Southern Baptist. At a certain point, he became black because he went to high school with black guys yeah. and he joined a black gang and he got involved in criminal activity, which then led his life to get out of control and then he became a black Muslim. And then as a black Muslim, he became, uh, uh, because of uh, one more permutation, Ferguson happened and at that point he became a Jewish revolutionary. And that's what he is today because he's the one who's defending this whole thing. So what you had to do here, there, was what we did here. Okay, you have to say, no, no, this isn't black, black. It's what this guy is, he's an identity thief. Because what the people who are upset about the statue are on the one side the Jews because he burned the, the king burned the Talmud, and on the other side the Catholics because we say he's a saint. This is, blacks have nothing to do with this at all. You're not in the picture, fellas. He had nothing to do with France in the 13th century. So what's he got to do? He's got to commit identity theft. And he says, announces that basically uh, a group of white supremacists are going to arrive at the statue tonight. We need to come out. You have to support us. Well, who are these? They, they, they tweet back, no, we're not white supremacists. We're Catholic, and we're going to pray the rosary. And so what happens is because he tweeted that, because he racialized it, because he stole their identity as Catholics and put a white identity on some black guy shows up and there's a video, he's beaten up this 60-year-old guy who thought he was there to say the rosary. No, he's a white supremacist because Umar said. So the showdown comes on July 12th. He's called, Umar's calling, got to have a big, it's going to be a coalition, and we're going to show them. The Catholics are saying, got to come out and pray the rosary. So nobody shows up on Umar's side. Thousands of Catholics show up, and he lost. Yeah. Within hours, the other thing that happened is I uh, released my article on St. Louis on Saturday. Now, I like to think my articles have an effect. You know, every writer likes to think that. But it did have an effect, and I know it had an effect because within hours of that defeat, Umar Lee contacts me and challenges me to a debate. Now, he didn't know me from Adam until that article came out and the article rained on his parade. And so I'm saying, I think what happened is that we preserved that statue. And we did it simply by exposing what was going on, which is what we're trying to do here. Okay? I think we did the same thing in South Bend. We stepped up to the plate and protested the Israelization of the police force that Pete was trying to yeah. do when he hired that 
Teachman, chief teacher. Teachman, the, the mercenary from Tajikistan. Now, that was a Jewish operation, but the guy who showed up, he was real black. Yeah. And he was the one who fielded all the questions, and that distracted you from the fact that, hey, we're removing a black police chief who happens to be a local guy. We're replacing local police with mercenaries. The, the Israeli techniques of kneeling on people's neck, which is what killed George Floyd, which is what started this whole thing. And we exposed that, and we got together on that thing after the George Floyd thing, and I think it had an effect. Because I think we're diffusing this revolutionary narrative. Now, this is all, you know, it's all in God's hands. It's much bigger than us. It's happening all across the country. It's happening all across the world. You know, we're in the middle of a, a, a huge crisis. But I think this is what counts. Yeah. You know, did you, when it comes down to it, are you going to be able to say to your grandchildren, I've spent the war shoveling shit in Louisiana? Or was I in the action? Right. Was I afraid right. to say something? Or did we get out there and get in front of it and have some type of positive effect? That's what this is about. And it took a long time to get the truth out on your case, right? I well, mean, that was constantly being submerged. Yeah, it, well, submerged. Um, I, I don't know if submerged um, it, it is, a, is the right word because the frustrating part of it was the way I was brought up in my, in my life. I was, you know, I came up and I'm 68 years old. I came up in the 50s, went through the civil rights we're, battle. We're the same. Right. And, and so, so my parents always drummed into me, you know, uh, the typical American beliefs. You know, we believed in America. We believed that right, it, you know, would win at some point. That believe in your country, believe in the system. You know, so for me, it was such a shock to find the, the depths of corruption. I remember talking to a reporter that came to town, uh, and I, you talked to him also, uh, 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 well, doing the Buttigieg campaign for president. There were a lot of reporters that came in, but, but uh, one of the guys that came in, um, I remember him coming in saying, essentially what I thought when I got here in 88, that he came expecting a small town, but, but he was stunned by the layers of corruption. This is, this is not a thin veneer of corruption. This is a torch that was passed from Joe Kernan to Pete Buttigieg. And Pete Buttigieg, the, the amazing thing about Pete Buttigieg in Mike's book really distilled who he was when he said he was a kid that sat in the kitchen window during the summer. How does this, that type of character, and you said his dad was very sarcastic and 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 arid. and that's Pete if you've ever been in the presence of Pete Buttigieg you you're dealing with a person that he's in his mind superior in every aspect to you and anything you're saying to him is just stupid and that's the attitude this great arrogance that he carried but his resume was paper thin so what they did was they created a resume they took a man who uh, received um, a special benefit and he didn't even go to boot camp. Now, that, that's so unusual. No, he never went to boot camp. Um, he, he had what's called in the military, because I had to research it. He had seven months of military service overseas. How do you get to be a lieutenant and the officer that he was? Well, he had what's called a direct placement, where if you go from graduate from college, certain uh, highly specialized MOS, like a doctor, Okay, yeah. they can uh, uh, commission you as an officer. He didn't have that. But they had that. My uncle was a Marine, mm -hmm. and he, he, could, he was very good on tests. Mm -hmm. So he tested out, 
for World War II, and he tested out for Korean well, War. Well, he didn't even test, though. He graduated from college and was directly placed as an uh, officer in an intelligence function. I can tell you that school for intelligence, because I checked again, the Marine Corps is 12 months. 12 months is longer than he served. He served seven months. Do you think that he was this little messiah? I mean, do you, do you yeah. think that they had him? It, it ties into what Mike says. There's a bigger picture here. It went from Joe Kernan to, uh, to Buttigieg. And then so there's a, in, in the, the tie-in with his father, these are things that uh, from South Bend was going to be essentially the new messiah. Uh, uh, and it's incredible. It really was. If Mike hadn't wrote a book and said the things that he said, I was able to uh, go to a lot of Facebook pages and use Mike's book and use the, the YouTube uh, 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 pieces that you guys did. Because people would write, oh, he's brilliant, he's smart. And so I would come and then share what you guys have had, had did. A lot of people bought into this brilliant young man, Rhodes Scholar, who is so successful in South Bend, and he's a veteran. Well, the, Billy, the, the Jimmy Carter-type Christians were, jump, were backing Buttigieg. Well, until they find out he was a homosexual. Well, but, but even Carter but, had him at his Sunday school yeah, class, and they, he came, Buttigieg came with his, hus well, with his husband. Jimmy Carter's Christianity is suspect in a lot of ways, okay? so but There's a so, lot of people claiming to be Christian that well, they could get them to vote. Well, he did, and he I, was I really... I think what, what became apparent at this period of time was oligarchic control. There you go. Because we're yeah. talking about the Re Religious Freedom Restoration Act, yeah. where basically CEOs just overturned the law in Brought the state Mike of Pence Indiana. Brought Mike Pence to his knees. I went to... I, I happened to be in Indianapolis. Um, I had a meeting with the parole board to get a pardon, and I just happened to be there. And the, the, the parole board is a half a block away from... Uh, the governor's office. So I had communicated with the governor's office by email um, because I, you know, a lot of the cons uh, uh, conservative Christians, you know, had asked me to get involved with Pence. And so I walked into his office. Well, first I walked into the rotunda. You literally had to, there must have been over a hundred cameras from media all over the world because, as Mike was saying, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was before Pence. And so I walked through the sea of cameras. I opened the governor's door. When the door opened, all it must have been 15 staff members in there. They turned with fear like the press was going to storm their office. Uh, and I ended up praying for them. Uh, so, so then later on, Mike Pence came up. There was a private fundraiser that he was at, and he asked me to pray for him then. But Mike Pence collapsed. He he just, he just couldn't, couldn't under, didn't understand he, what was going he on. He didn't understand. Didn't understand. It, it, it destroyed him. It broke it didn't him. Underst he didn't understand. He, he, what, did, what did you need to understand? This was an oligarchic attempt to overthrow representative government. You're still telling people these, none and, of these people this, were Indiana the, residents. That's right. That's right. And the, and the other thing is also the homosexual has been weaponized, and it's a political faction, and that's what that's what's going on here. They are the proxy warriors of the oligarchs. Nobody talks about that anymore because we're back to the old Black Lives Matter thing. But the Black Lives Matter founders were homosexuals, right, right. so and, you and need foot soldiers. So it all goes together, and it all comes back to the university with people like Foucault. Of course, and the the, the weaponization of the underdog and turning uh, the world upside down, and what was bad is now good, and what is good is now. Because we. 
know better than you because we're intellectuals now. And that's that's the, the, the gist of all of these movements there. It's moral blackmail. Yeah. These people have a superior morality Absolutely. to you. Absolutely. You know, you talk Absolutely. about so so it's abortion is a right. Yeah. And you better get that straight. Yeah. But if you wear blackface, yeah. that is a heinous crime. Yeah. Well, who gave you the right to to overturn the moral order here? And this, the symbolization, the symbol is in South Bend is we used to have the statue of the Ten Commandments in front of the courthouse. And then it got moved to a parking lot and then it disappeared. Well, now you have Hesburgh with Dr. King, and that's which exactly is ridiculous. What that's what I say. I say you do, pedestals don't remain empty. Right. Okay. And now we have this, this perversion of the civil rights movement where what is really important is the color of your skin and not the content of yeah. your character. Yeah. And that's now the ideology that has moral superiority, and they can trump whatever you're doing. That's right. They come in there, and they've got this moral superiority, and you just have to... I, I couldn't believe it. There's this, guy, this video, and there's this guy, and he's saying to this girl, I'm from Black Lives Matter. And he says, kneel down. And she kneels down, and then he says, say you're sorry for being white. And she says, where did, where did you get this power? Yeah. It's bad education yeah. ba based on revolutionary ideology of the sort that Joe Buttigieg promoted, not just at Notre Dame, but throughout the entire system. Yeah. But, but for sure, Ernestine Racklin saw that Joe Kernan could be mayor, number one, probably, his, mil his military service, right? Okay, because that's what gets sure, you in. That sure. gets you in. POW. Oh, you. We can. Sure. We can play this one. Sure. Notre Dame. Right. But what he comes in with is the morality of the military, it's, and he comes yeah. in with the morality yeah. that Notre Dame gave him, right. and that's all been compromised. Right. Exactly. But that's what people see. It's so. It. You know. It's a perversion of what's right and what's just. You know, we talk about, we haven't even touched on, and, and I know it's a, for another show, that what's been done to Mike with, you know, Amazon and those type of things. What, what has happened in America, you know, coming up in the 60s, the left fought for what was good for America. Now, it, it is, we choose what the First Amendment means. We choose who can use the First Amendment. Well, who said, did you decide? Who gave you the right? To decide on what we're allowed to say. Yeah. No, who no, gave no. you that? Who? And I'm, I'm referring specifically to the ADL, which has millions of dollars, a budget of millions of dollars to spy on you and wreck your career if they don't like you, or to go to places like Amazon and say, we want this guy removed. They just they have figured out that if we tell that white girl to kneel, she's in so such what, a condition, what, she will. What, what are we talking about here? We're talking about loss of identity because of loss of morality. So you don't know who you are, and you don't know what you believe. And they'll tell you. And you don't know what you stand for, and so if you have that vacuum, no vacuum, nature abhors a vacuum, right. and that vacuum filled. will be filled by their ideology, and they will control you. That's, right. That's exactly what's going on with that guy in St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, he's going to tell you he has control over the history of St. Louis. He can veto statues. He can veto the entire history of hundreds of years of uh, 1765 yeah. to this day. Yeah. yeah, what would the great grandfathers say as they're observing this in the sky? What would they be thinking of their grandchildren? Yeah. You know, they'd say, Where's your spine? What happened? But I mean, well, but, but, but the other hand, the other hand, I have to say, that there's something providential about St. Louis. 
Because you picked a saint. Yeah. You picked a saint. Well, but, but you go back to what we've always said to people who don't understand the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And that's, see, what they'll do with, with Mike is he'll mention the Jews, and then so the JDL will say, you know, they'll say he's anti-Semitic. And no, if you, if you go scriptural, you look at Barabbas. Everybody can understand what happened. If you draw the contrast of here's Jesus who was tried six times and he's innocent, and here's this thief that all of the religious people and the crowd, who are they? They're Jews who are saying, we want Barabbas. Who's a revolutionary. Who's a revolutionary. That is, but they took that and they tried to ride Mike out of town on a pole, which... And if you're an ignorant, unstudied, unstudied, unlearned person who, who cannot think for yourself, you will just knee-jerk react and say, because I've had to defend Mike. How could you be? He's not anti-Semitic. What are you talking about? That's why we have to, they have to deprive you of your identity. Exactly. And they deprive you of your identity by depriving you of your religion because your religion is the guardian of your morality and morality is reason. So well, you now have no defense. Well, see, but here in my case, watch what happened. What we're going to do is discredit him because everybody knows he's a felon. Mm -hmm. Do you see what happened? You don't want to listen to Mario. I mean, he's got a rape conviction. Well, but, I mean, just like you said, Mike was anti-Semitic. Upon closer examination, that's not true. And upon closer examination, you'll find that the truth has been fabricated. Truth is withheld. That's what's going on here. Truth has been held hostage. And if you don't have enough money or a big enough platform, then they'll bury you. That's what they're trying to do with Mike. They're trying to bury him. That's what they've tried to do with me. But God is on his throne. God is in charge. Yeah. 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 I'm thinking of Second John, like the fourth verse where it says, you know, uh, that the Father commands us, yeah. in paraphrase, the Father commands us to walk in truth. But the problem and, is you, know, you, you have so many cowardly Christians, you have so many people, that, and that's another story, that are not Christians, that call themselves Christians. What is the main reason for cowardice? It's being morally compromised. That's it. Yep. Here, here it's that verse. King James, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received the commandment from the Father. You know. Well, but but remember, go back to Pontius Pilate standing with Jesus and saying, "What is truth?" Because truth is relative nowadays. To um, it's a relative truth. But to, we're representing bring, Jesus, and we're to set the record straight that right. there is truth. To bring this full circle, and maybe to end it. Uh, when I got fired at St. Mary's, didn't hear a word, didn't hear a peep from anyone for weeks. And then suddenly I walk into my office and it's covered with memos, contact the president. Well, the president got word that I had just written an article about my experience. And so he invited me into his office, he's real chummy with me, he offered me a cookie uh, when I sat down in his office, show you what decent guy he was. And then he said to me, uh, uh, I understand you wrote an article. I said, yeah, that's true. And he said, well, we'd like to see a copy. And I said, yeah, you will. It's, it's coming out next week. Oh, no, we want to see it before it comes out. And I said, well, wh why should I do that? Isn't that censorship? I mean, uh, why, should I, why should I give you a copy? Well, in the interest, interest of fairness and objectivity, he said to me. I said, Jack, when was this place ever fair or objective with me?
And he said, well, we're, he said, we're afraid you're going to distort things. And I said, Jack, I'm going to tell the truth. Yeah. And Jack, at that point, jumped up. He was, had a cigar in one hand and a lighter, and he was kind of nervous. He jumps up, and he says to me, screaming now, truth, bullshit. He kept saying, truth, bullshit, truth, bullshit. And they're screaming, and they're, the secretaries are nervous. You know, they're wondering what's going on. And that was the epigraph. That was what he believed. That was what he believed. Truth. Well, the truth. Well, in, in the law press, you hear terms like that. The guy who taught the law course, he's going in. This guy taught us where he's going into court for this big thing, and he's telling the his, his attorney. He said, "Well, we can hardly lose. We got truth on our side." And the attorney rebukes him. He said, "Truth isn't what matters. It's the yeah. appearance of truth." That's right. Or if he had, if he had been more sophisticated, Jack was a crude guy. Uh, he would have said, "Truth is the opinion of the powerful." which is what Thrasymachus said to Socrates, actually said justice is the opinion of the powerful. And that's the question, are, are, are we going to simply roll over and play dead when the powerful say that to us? No, no we're not going to do that. And no. truth, truth is great and it's going to prevail. Well, and the fact why, that you're why. still alive, that you're out here now, and I'm still alive, and that we're still talking this way, is some indication that there's a greater power here that's right. at work here. I mean, Logos is rising, and we know things now that we never knew before. Well, that's why, like the Catholic Church, my, my Catholic Church growing up, it was St. Cecilia's. Well, half the churches were named after martyrs sometimes, right? I mean, if you look out, well, what was the idea? Why did they so... It's a witness. They why did witness? they so praise somebody who died? Because that's the battle line, okay? Right. Telling the truth... Right can get you martyred. And so the church puts as much reward on that as possible to encourage people to stay on the path. You might even get a church named after you because that's what you're yeah. that's what's supposed to be highly uh, admired. Yes. But but truth is not being admired yeah. in so many places. Well our our Savior said I'm the truth and the light. I mean, you know life. So it it, it you know, to me being being in prison, you know, I can only relate to uh, Joseph in Genesis fifty nineteen when he said, "What you intended for evil, God intended for good," because in prison is the absolute worst place you can go in the world, and 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 you have, you know, Nelson Mandela. I remember reading. I had a chance to read over seven hundred books at the time I was in prison, and I read the Long Walk to Freedom. And one of the things that stuck me as I was, that just really stuck with me was when he said, "I refuse to lose my dignity." I'm not going to let them steal my dignity. And, and to me, that was so important. To be able to be a truth speaker, you have to maintain your dignity. And, and so for me, what it did was create a situation that I learned to maintain dignity at the same time speak truth because they'll try and discredit you. If, it's, if you lose your dignity, they'll point and say, look, look at this guy, you know what I'm saying? So in the effort to destroy Mike, they made Mike stronger. In the effort to destroy me, they make me stronger. And the same, you win. I mean, we, you, I know your story, and I know how you left the school system and all that stuff, and why you're not at, you weren't still chaplain at the jail. I mean, three men here have all suffered a loss, if you will. Uh, but that's part of who our Savior was. Mm-hmm. That's, Amen. And that's, Amen. And that's what we're trying to promote. We need right. to have uh, the young people, because we're all getting older, the young people need to see that pursuing truth, and like Mike has always said, you know, it took me 40 years. Yeah. 
to get to these truths. Sure. Okay? Sure. And it takes a while. It does. Yeah, but it, it happens. So, State of course. So the, the end of Psalm 37 is, you know, when last I passed here, the wicked, he was as tall as a cedar of Lebanon. And then I passed again, and he wasn't there. And that's true. So we're talking about the passing of one of these powerful men. Well, actually. Who now has gone to whatever God has intended for him for eternity. Actually, in, in closing, two of the powerful men that we talked about, Mike Barnes, died. And matter of fact, this was filed um, May 8th. Mike Barnes died four days after that was filed. Uh, in June, and Joe Kernan just recently died in July, so within those two months, two of the pillars of uh, corruption are no longer here and facing God for whatever judgment he deems fit. Yeah, right, and it says several times in Scripture, do not take delight in the fall of your enemy, right. lest God see right. and withhold his hand. So uh, with, with fear and trembling, right. we talk about Joker. There's no delight here. There's just a statement of fact. Statement of fact. Right. And that's why I said I had to pray over even coming up with the one word as a despot, taking no joy. Uh, but there, we have to tell the truth because these men created suffering. Buddha Judge and Kernan, they created real suffering. Um, and by uh, continuing corruption, corruption is like a cancer. Uh, and that's exactly what you have here in South Bend, a cancer upon this city. Um, you certainly can't rejoice with that. No. Amen. So this is uh, <clears throat> Peter Helen. This is Citizens for Community Media. And um, it's a blessing that we were able to get on public access yeah. that knocked, they knocked it down for six years. And we, we were able to get it back up. And uh, the, it's hard to get the truth out. And some yeah. communities are harder than others. Okay, and so hopefully this is a benefit for those who are watching. Dr. Jones, Pastor Sims, Peter Helland.